Starting this fall, amazing local educators will be recognized with the launch of Superior Educators. This collaboration between several local school personnel and the Portage Health Foundation is meant to celebrate the people who make our area schools a great place to learn and grow. All educators at K-12 public schools in Barraga, Houghton, Keweenaw, and Otsunagan counties are eligible, including bus drivers, teachers, support staff, and more. Nominate a Superior Educator you know at superioreducators.org. Welcome to Capra Country Today. I'm Grant Ducetto. This program brought to you by the Portage Health Foundation. You can learn more at phfgive.org. I have two guests for this first segment. It is MTU Associate Professor and Coordinator for KISMA, Sigrid Rush. KISMA stands for the Keweenaw Invasive Species Management Area and also MTU Student Counter Ford. Thank you for joining me. Sigrid, I guess we'll start with what exactly is an invasive species management area? And I know KISMA is not the only one. In fact, I think there's 20, maybe 21 across the state. So you're working with Michigan Tech along with Keweenaw Land Trust to cover Houghton, Keweenaw, and Barraga counties, correct? And then the other SISMAs cover anywhere from one to five counties, I think now is the biggest one. We primarily get our funding through all of the grants that we write. Um, so we're all soft money funded, all the coordinators, all of the crew. Um, we have to apply for those grants, they're competitive grants. I saw that Oakland County is kind of by itself in its own little management area. I don't know how they managed to make that happen, but they seem to be the only one. <laughs> that is just one county. Yes, yes, that's, that's exactly right. Um, it just varied by whose fiduciary picked up the different counties, and uh, most of them fiduciary managers are the conservation districts. But there are some oddballs, and I'm one of them. Michigan Tech is the only university that is a fiduciary for a SISMA. And how did that relationship start, do you know? Well, the original fiduciary for KISMA was through the Houghton Keweenaw Conservation District. That was from 2011 to 2015. But when I got hired in 2015 by HKCD, it made more sense for me to work through Michigan Tech because I was already an employee of Michigan Tech. And then there was a bit of a transition with the grants from the Houghton Keweenaw Conservation District to KLT, Keweenaw Land Trust, and then to Michigan Tech. So there was a bit of a transition that had to happen in order to get all the funding through in the timely fashion that needed to happen. And so finally it worked around to Michigan Tech and that works well for me because I can hire my students very easily for all the crews and work that I have done. It makes that coverage of insurance and hiring employees that much easier. That's actually a problem for some of the SISMAs with conservation districts is, is getting the, having enough funding base to cover students and costs of running their SISMAs. And so having, having Michigan Tech cover me is really a nice facet to my relationship. Regarding the actual organizational structure of KISMA, how is it set up? Who are you answering to? What groups are involved to make sure this runs smoothly? So I have a steering committee um, that consists of a subset of my partners. My partners are anything from the federal government, so Forest Service and National Park Service, to state agencies, the DNR primarily, um, their state parks and recreation division. And then I have local conservations, um, so Keweenaw Land Trust and the Nature Conservancy and Gratiot Lake Conservancy, and then the tribe. So KBIC is part of my partnership. And then um, we work with some of the smaller community 
land trusts in the area. So yes, so the steering committee then is a subset of those people and then I meet with them three to four times a year. They help guide where I'm going to write my grants, but they leave a lot of it up to me, which varies again by SISMA. So some SISMAs have steering committees that um, are pretty much mandating what they need to cover. And my steering committee is pretty hands-off and lets me write the grants and focus on, on the areas that I think are priority. And as far as the grants go, where are they coming from? Is it mostly federal government type stuff or can you work with say local nonprofits like Portage Health Foundation, that kind of thing? For me, I have focused primarily on the um, grants through the Michigan Invasive Species Grant Program. When you write a grant, uh, they have a pool of money that's available to SISMAs. Um, then there's also a larger pool of funding that is competitive across anybody who wants to do invasive species work. And that's where some of my grants come through. And then the Forest Service and the EPA provide Great Lakes Restoration Initiative funding. And that's where a chunk of my other funding comes from. When you are working with these different groups and agencies from the federal to the local level, is it hard to keep track of everything? That's another really nice aspect of my relationship with Michigan Tech being the fiduciary is it is hard to keep track of. It is still a huge component of my coordination position, but um, they make sure that the funding comes in and goes back out um, depending on uh, what I need and, and what they have to build to my grants. They check the boxes and make sure all the budgets balance and in the end I do not have to be held responsible because Michigan Tech takes on that responsibility for me. So I don't have to have the accounting degree that I felt like I needed to have when I first started um, with Kisma, and it was going through other uh, fiduciaries. There was a lot more responsibility on my shoulders to make sure that all the budgets were balanced, and now I can leave that up to tech, and they do all the billing for me. So that's a really great benefit of working with Michigan Tech. I would guess that when you're talking about different levels of government, the grant applications have to be in at very different times of the year. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, you know, one of my grants, I report twice a year. Two of my grants, I only have to report once a year. It varies by the time of year. And then also when the grants RFPs are called, so the, the call for proposals comes out. And those, so I have one that's coming up at the beginning of September. Um, I put it out to this past March and then another one in May. I don't think they care if it's field season or reporting time. They just put out their RFPs for when they think it's um, useful for them to get their reviewers. So, you know, at the mercy of my funding agencies for that, for sure. And Connor, maybe you can talk about being a student in the program and, and working with KISMA. I mean, did you start as a freshman or... You know, when did you get involved and is that kind of the normal story or is it, do people pick it up for a year and then maybe drop back off again, that type of thing? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I did start as a freshman. Um, I had no idea. I'd never heard of Kisma. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know Sigrid was a professor at the, at the college. I, I had no idea. Um, in one of my orientation classes last year, it would have been, um, they, Michigan Tech offers a really great program to CFRES students or College of Forest Resources and Environmental Science students um, called Earn and Learn. So I was able to work as an Earn and Learn employee with Kisma during the fall semester and the spring semester last year. And that was a great opportunity to kind of get my feet in the door and kind of get an idea of what Kisma was about, um, if it was something I wanted to continue to pursue, let's say, this summer. 
And uh, also, it, it offered really flexible hours. So, like, uh, some learn and learn positions that I've heard that aren't Kismo, although they're great through the college. Circuit was awesome in offering me flexible hours during the weeks. So that was really nice, that flexibility. But last year, I started as, like I said, an earn and learn, and I did mainly terrestrial work. So, a lot of work on the Michigan Tech trails just behind campus here. And we were removing um, invasive plants, so buckthorn, barberry, and I'm sure maybe we'll get into that a little later as well. And uh, But like I said, great opportunity for me. And going into my second year, or I guess my summer up here, um, I, I liked Kismo enough where I said, you know, Houghton's also a great place. So I want to stay up here during the summer. And um, this gave me the perfect opportunity to do so. So uh, I, And I can talk about some of the work I did this summer if you would like. Sure. Um, yeah, so, we'll get into that in a second. Yeah, for um, sure. I'll get back to Secret here a little bit. Um, as far as the number of students, what are we looking at during the school year and then over the summer? How many people are on staff helping out? So that's been really variable over the years, but as I think word of mouth has spread uh, Kisma <laughs> to other students finding out about it, I'm, I'm getting um, more requests to have people work with me, and that's actually really really nice because they can work through the semester. You know, in the beginning yeah. when the season's nice, we can actually get out and do hands-on field work. And then we've switched last year to doing social media, and Connor was actually helping me with the research on, on the impacts of herbicides on other ecosystem properties other than just the invasives that's being targeted by a lot of um, managers of invasives. The off-target impacts. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the off-target impacts. So we had a lot of different projects that were going on during the school year. I had five students that started out with me last fall. Um, by the time COVID shut down the university after Thanksgiving, one of those students dropped off because she moved home and just stayed there. But then I had four students, and then come the summer, three of those students stuck with Kisma through the entire summer. So, and then I think going into the fall, two more, yeah. two of those students are still going to stay with me. So, it's you know I've gone from absolutely zero doing it all by myself to having this summer nine students split among three different. Project. And do they tend to be forestry students, environmental engineers, or does it represent a wide range of different disciplines? Mostly they're in my college. Um, so I have wildlife, forestry, and applied ecology students. Um, I've had a couple of biology students. Um, no civil engineers yet. None of the environmental engineers have come to work for me, but they have volunteered um, with tree planting that I do on the tech trails for uh, emerald ash borer mitigation. I do get volunteers from those groups. We've had whole dorm floors of, of students come out and help. It's nice because they get hands-on experience to see what it takes to help with the management of invasive species and they take it back and talk to their before we sat down, I always kind of assumed KISMO would be a very seasonal dependent type of organization. It's going to be when you can get out and about in the, in the yeah. forest and, and see the ground and find the different plants that you're going to be doing most of your work. But if you're doing stuff through social media and other virtual means like you were last year, mm -hmm. can that apply going forward? Does that add some aspects during the long Q&A winters that kind of keep the group, yeah. the momentum going forward? Yeah, so 100%. I mean, last winter we spent a lot of time working on our website, so that's something that we, we really wanted to to kind of get it we had a website pr previously and a lot of it was done before i had kind of joined kisma and in, in terms of what was already done that required a little bit of work last winter and that gave us something good to do and now it's kind of up to where we want it i'm sure we're, we'll keep adding stuff to it as we go but in terms of social media work um that's something that we can do for 
you know, as long as we are an organization. And it's something that we intend to do for as long as we are an organization. Um, we want to reach out to as many people as we can. So it's a goal of ours to kind of just keep expanding and growing our social media platforms. And um, that always gives us something to do, especially during kind of like the off, you know, it's not field season or it, it might be snowing. Um, <laughs> it might be raining, especially, you know, as the semester starts to get a little colder here. Um, so that always offers us some kind of, you know, stable work. Not a lot, but enough. As far as the, I guess, the percentage of the work being done out in the field, how much of it is terrestrial based and how much of it is aquatic based? So actually the aquatic program is just brand new to Kizma this past summer. Um, I had the opportunity to work with the National Park Service to get a, a boat wash, um, a portable boat wash into our area. And that's been great. That allowed me to hire Connor and his colleague Megan Baird yep. for the for the whole summer. Um, and then we had another grant that came along that allowed us to do surveys for European frog bit. And so that they split their time between boat washing and European frog bit monitoring. Um, luckily, we have not found any in our area so far. Not gonna yeah. do it. <laughs> and. Um, so the aquatic was brand spanking new. Um, I've had a terrestrial crew since 2017 after I got my first big grant. Um, and that's carried on and grown bigger with more demands on our time and more people learning about it. But that's sort of been a, a key feature, a keystone of our of Kizma's existence for me in the, in the summer because it gets the word out. Students are out working and get questions and spread the word about what invasive species are and what kinds of impacts they have. And then um, this past year we also got a, a knotweed specific grant which has been um, sort of my pet peeve of invasive species in this area. It was the whole reason I got drawn into invasive species in the first place was because I found knotweed on a trail that I run on and I wanted to do something about it and um, I did not get my first grant for it but I did get this position so now we finally do have a grant that's that's specifically for um, basically censusing all of the knotweed in our tri-county area and then prioritizing management on those um, patches that are close to water bodies or close to conservation areas or concerns for um, uh, larger areas of spread. So we're right now in that process of divvying up the sites into what needs to be managed immediately. And then we're going to be testing different management protocols. So um, everything from chemicals to manual to biocontrol are being used to uh, see what kinds of successes we can have and what works the best for developing best management practices in our area for knotweed. So you talked about European frog bit. Yeah. Yes. And you talked about knotweed. One is here, one is not. What are some of the other species that you deal with most often? My biggest concerns in the forests are the buckthorns, um, barberry that you can still buy at uh, local nurseries and planting your yard and you think it's staying there, but it, um, mammals are actually carrying the seeds into the forest and causing infestations of barberry. Buckthorn gets spread by birds, so any of our seeding mature buckthorn species, um, will you'll find those covering a lot of different forested areas up here. So those are the key forest um, productivity hinders that I work with. Um, and then we have a handful of herbaceous species that are of priority concern here. Um, wild parsnip is one of them. Those are at our uh, central mine has a huge infestation of wild parsnip. And there's a few other spots here and you'll see it growing along the roads between here and Munising and beyond. And that's um, a big concern because not only does it 
um, spread quickly and hinder the uh, biodiversity of, of an ecosystem, but it's actually a health concern for humans because it, it has a photosensitive chemical that causes rashes and burns on your skin. If the sap comes in contact with your skin and you have sunlight on you, then that's what causes the burn. So we don't want that spreading in areas where we have recreation. And so that's that's been a problem um, for the Upper Peninsula for a while. That's south of here mostly, but like I said, Central Mines has it. So it is a concern. Um, what else do we do? Thistles are um, a management issue for our wetlands. So um, primarily European marsh thistle is a species that I've worked with um, at Gratiot Lake Conservancy properties to protect the wetlands. They have some, they have a beautiful, beautiful, um, highly diverse wetland system that was uh, being overrun by European marsh thistle. So the crew and I go out for pretty much an entire day um, pulling that thistle, cutting the heads off, the, the, the flowering heads off so they don't develop in the seeds and then we throw those into a bag and, and then we go and swim in Gratiot Lake for <laughs> some downtime. And it's a beautiful site that's totally worthy of protecting, but takes a lot of effort uh, each year for our crew to go out there. Purple loose drive. Yeah, that's the focus right now. You can see the flowers in, uh, along ditches along US 41 and covering a lot of our wetlands. Um, for purple loose drive, my, I'm relying on a beetle called the Gallarcella beetle that's a biocontrol beetle. It's been released here since um, probably the late 1900s. I've been releasing it further in the field, um, seeing really great impacts of the of the beetle that only eats purple loosestrife, and and it helps um, lower its productivity, decreases the amount of flowering it does, and it allows it to coexist with the other wetland species in the area that belong there. So it's um, it seems to be working. The more I, the more beetles I bring in, and the more I'm seeing them yeah. around. We're seeing them at sites that they have spread to on their own from from sites that I locally supplied with the beetles. So they're doing a good job. Um, so as long as I can see patches of beetles doing their their job then and the and that other native uh, wetland species are growing in and around the purple loose drive, then I am less concerned about that its existence. But I certainly don't want to see it expand. So we're keeping on those beetles and making sure that we spread more more of them when we find more patches. But there is a lot of purple loosestrife in that area. <laughs> now, is Kisma only concerned with pulling out invasive species, or does it do some work planting and maybe um, nurturing native species in the Keweenaw? I love that question because that is really my ultimate goal is to bring back um, diversity to ecosystems that have been impacted by invasive species. So for instance, um, this year we'll be planting around 800 trees on the tech trails for, um, to mitigate for emerald ash borer uh, infestations that have taken out most of our upland and wetland ash species. So um, when I first started working on that project, I was um, noticing that there was a lot of areas where overstory ash had been removed from our trails by emerald ash bark overstory kill, and that left gaps for the things like barbarian buckthorn to expand into. I wrote this grant that's uh, centered on removing um, patches of those invasives and then replanting native uh, a whole handful of 
different species of native shrubs and trees and um, and then monitoring the survival of those over time so that we can add more if we need to so uh, in the end we'll probably have put about 1600 not 1600 yeah yeah, six, over over, a th over well over a thousand over yeah. a thousand about sixteen hundred um, individual trees and shrubs out there. Um, and this fall there will be opportunities. I'll be hiring more students. Usually it's a crew of about twenty students. I hire for a very short period of time to get them planted, and then um, and then we take volunteers. So we'll be advertising that um, when the time comes. We have to wait for the weather to cool down so that the survival is better for the species that we plant. But yeah, we. Um, we seed in where we can, uh, we're growing herbaceous uh, seedlings to plant um, in some of the areas where we remove invasives because when you take an invasive species out, you're leaving a hole and if you already have invasive species in that area, likely the hole on the on that soil, the landscape disturbance that you've left from removal will be refilled by another invasive species if not that same that you removed. Uh, so part of Part of restoring the ecosystem definitely is more than just removal. It's it's planting natives to to take up that space and get back get the resiliency back to that ecosystem. And and that's kind of part of the reason why um I I had done a little bit of like research and work into the impacts of herbicide use in terms of invasive species management and just herbicide use as a whole. Um, and Sigrid, as a Kisma coordinator, I think does a really, really good job of um, stressing the importance of avoiding chemical use when it isn't needed. Um, a lot of people might think that, you know, if there's a lot of invasive species in this area, one of the surefire ways to get rid of them is just apply herbicide. So, um, and, it, and it, it does. It does a pretty good job in a lot of circumstances, but there's also a lot of off-target impacts that we may or may not know about and um, if it can be avoided it's what we want to do um, and that's another way that I think as a Kisma as an organization does a really good job of um, promoting kind of ecological strength and diversity essentially you want to make sure that herbicides are a tool but not a shortcut exactly yeah yeah so Kisma um, one of my main purposes for Kisma is to provide proof of concept of manual or biological control of invasive species over that of chemical control. I have a master's student who's working on looking at um, using a, a native fungal decomposer as a cut stump application for the buckthorns in place of using chemicals as cut stump application. And so I'm waiting for those results. She's going to be finishing up this fall. I've feel like we dump enough chemicals into our environment inadvertently, let alone on purpose for other purposes. So um, I, I just want to be able to find a proof of concept for, for different methods. So for knotweed management, I, use, I do manual removal with carpet um, or tarps that we cover patches of, of knotweed and then we cut around those tarps or carpets and pile those, the knotweed on those to stop them from touching the ground and growing new stems. But then um, they dry out, we have less area to have to manage, and then the knotweed is, gets controlled over a number of years. And I, I'm near to the end of a project that will show that it's a, it's a very useful way. Um, works really well if you have small areas of knotweed you want to get rid of. Not very quick, but as it turns out, chemicals aren't very quick either, <laughs> and they're having to reapply them and reapply them. So. Um, my method probably, I would say, is more time-consuming for the effort of removal, but um, I can easily go and plant new species as um, new native species as I'm removing the knotweed, 
and I don't have to worry about chemicals disturbing that system and making it so no, those natives won't regrow. So it's more of a rewarding part of my job is being able to see the natives come in when I'm removing invasives without chemicals. One last question for you. Hopefully we can end on a positive note. That's how I like to finish up my interviews. We always think of invasive species as like a Superman comic, the never-ending battle. Once it's here, you got to fight it forever. Are there any cases where that didn't happen, though, where something came into the area and after 5, 10, 15 years, we beat it back, and then it was gone for the most part, or certainly manageable going forward? Can you think of a good case study on that? I know that there is a chance that that could be um, naturally happening with garlic mustard if managers would let it happen. Garlic mustard is a forest invasive herbaceous species. So it, it grows in the open, but it, it will invade into the understory um, for uh, probably a century. It's been moving across uh, from the east to the west of the United States. and and managers pounced on it and have been fighting really hard to pull it out whenever they find it. But it grows a seed, it, it grows enough seed that goes into the soil and becomes a seed bank. And if left um, to, to take over, to, to roam across the forest, people were concerned that it would run out every other, of every other species that would, should be growing there, uh, including tree um, regeneration. Mm -hmm. And what a researcher, um, Burnt Blossy, in um, upstate New York has found is that, uh, I believe he's at Cornell, um, has found that if you leave garlic mustard alone, if you literally stop disturbing it, which is a problem if you have deer, um, but if managers would just let it grow for a few years, what it happens to do is it changes the soil chemistry enough to actually inhibit itself. And then the native species start to eke back in. And so you don't get rid of garlic mustard, but you allow it to coexist with the, with the other species. And, and I think the effect that the, what Bern Blossy used as an example to describe what's happening is like a ripple effect. So if you were to drop a, a rock into a pond, that would be like the initial site of invasion for garlic mustard. And as the ripples slowly move out, the garlic mustard moves out. But where it initially invaded, it does not grow anymore. It does not do as well over a period of time. I don't know if it was yeah, about a we're decade. Yeah, like a decade. Yeah, I mean, and none of, none of this stuff can happen like that. But the, the, having the idea and the knowledge to know that it is better to not manage this specific species with this information is is great it's great and, to know but it needs to get out there yeah the manager and, it, and it's hard to get people convince people to stop managing it because they've been doing it for a long long time so it's one of those that the battle's not being won with management and something else has to come in if if we're going to do something and it turns out perhaps the something else is to stop disturbing it but if you have a high deer population that's not going to happen because deer will disturb it and deer will actually pick out they won't eat the garlic mustard, but they'll pick out the natives that they're trying to grow back in. So um, high, high deer populations are actually a huge hindrance to the recovery of an ecosystem from invasive species impacts. So that's, that's another story, but it's definitely something we should be thinking about in terms of, of our deer populations. They are unprecedentedly high here and, and um, in the United States as a whole, and, and that's not doing um, our ecosystems any um, favors. Um, the, one of the other things I'd like to say though is 
biological control, though scary when you think about releasing another, um, you know, whether it be a fungus or a, a insect, um, those are being very well tested before they get released. There are, there are the, the likelihood of another mistake like it's happened in, in past decades as is very, very slim because of the number of years of testing and the protocol they go through. And, but when we release, um, say, something like the Gallarucella beetle that's been here for, in our area specifically, for 20 years, we can see that what it's doing is not taking away populations of loosestrife, absolutely, but it's allowing, it's knocking back their product, productivity enough to allow a native species to coexist. And so I think we're looking at um, an idea for invasive species of not totally removing them from the landscapes that they've been introduced to, but in providing enough of another, um, you know, another either be an insect or a disease that, that they would naturally have that would keep their populations under control where they're from. Um, when we introduce that here, that keeps their populations under control here. And that's, you know, then they're adding to a diversity of an ecosystem and not necessarily taking it away. Sigrid Rush and Connor Ford from Michigan Tech and also Kisma, the Keweenaw Invasive Species Management Area. Thank you very much for joining me on Copper Country today.